Ladies and gentlemen, this is a difficult moment for America. I, um, unfortunately, will be going back to Washington after my remarks. Secretary Rod Pace and Lieutenant Governor <clears throat> will take the podium and discuss education. I do want to thank the folks here at, uh, at the Booker Elementary School for their hospitality. Uh, today, we've had a national tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. I have spoken to the Vice President, to the Governor of New York, to the Director of the FBI, and I've ordered that the full resources of the federal government uh, go to help the victims and their families and, the, and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. And now if you join me in a moment of silence. May God bless the victims, their families, and America. Thank you very much. That's a now very familiar clip. It's President George W. Bush addressing the nation shortly after the terrorist attacks on the morning of 9-11. He was speaking from the Emma E. Booker Elementary School in Sarasota, Florida. He'd spent some time there that morning reading to the students when suddenly he was interrupted. You'll notice he mentions in the clip that he's going back to Washington, but was he really? President Bush's travel on that day and every day was coordinated by the man you're about to hear from. He's retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling. I asked Bob to introduce himself. Gosh, certainly. Hi, Thomas. How are you, by the way? It's, uh, <laughs> it's great to do this podcast with you. It's, it's good to be here. I am uh, Bob Darling. I'm a retired uh, uh, Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel. I flew attack helicopters in the Marine Corps for most of my career. In June of 1998, I was selected to fly President Bill Clinton around, so I did a service my time in HMX-1. That was the name of the squadron. Um, you're, you're, it's known today as Marine One. I worked in the White House military office. And, you know, my uh, story today is about September 11th, so, you know, supporting the White House military office. From there, I went out to Monterey, California, got my MBA in financial management, back to the Pentagon, and I retired in 2007. I've been married uh, just short of 28 years now. We're coming up on 28 years. I have two two boys, Michael and Matthew, uh, 25 and 22. We live in Stafford, Virginia, and um, grew up in Newburgh, New York, by West Point. Mm -hmm. I'm the third of four boys, and my dad was in the Navy, so I grew up with a military family, and and my uh, brother Dennis also served in the Navy, so I was the third. Then, then there's you know me and Neil. Uh, Neil's my uh, youngest brother. And I'm the only one who was a Marine in my family. Bob mentioned in his book that he never gave any thought about serving in the armed forces. That is, until 1983, when a terrorist bomb blew up the Marine barracks in Beirut. That changed his perspective and his direction forever. Yeah, it's really a fascinating story. I, like I said, third or four boys. And I went to college, and my initial aspiration was to be a good hockey player. And then I wanted to be an economist. And ultimately, I wanted to be a stockbroker. I wanted to make a ton of money and live somewhere in the Hamptons on Long Island, New York, and, and be a multimillionaire. That was my, my young man's aspiration. Um, 
It was October 23rd, 1983. I was a freshman on campus, brand new freshman at Iona College in New Rochelle, New York, when in the news we had the largest non-nuclear weapon detonation overseas in Beirut, Lebanon, and 241 Marines lost their lives. It was a talk of the campus. And I remember going, well, I didn't know the Marines were there. What were the Marines doing there? Um, why are the Marines in Lebanon? And so geopolitically, there was lots of discussion on campus. Some of the more senior students who were juniors and seniors were telling me that they're going to officer candidate school. They've decided to join the United States Marine Corps. They're gonna go fly jets and helicopters and lead Marines in combat. And, and that, wasn't, that wasn't me. But when I learned more about them going to do that, I decided, hey, maybe that's for me too. I went down and I met a captain, a Marine Corps captain. He was a recruiter in, in New York in that district. His name was Captain Cooper Ryder. He was a very nice man, but he wanted nothing to do with me. He stressed the moment I walked in that the Marine Corps was hiring leaders. They're not here for, for you know, uh, career day. If you don't want to be a Marine, the Air Force is right down the hall. The Army's right around the corner. Think about the Navy. And that reverse psychology of saying, you're not what we're looking for, just floored me. I went home with my tail between my legs. I started reading up in the Marine Corps. I wanted to be in that leadership program. I went back and saw him my sophomore year. He said, not this year, come back maybe next year. I got it in even better shape. And during my junior year at Iona, I was selected to go to officer candidate school. 10 weeks, it's basically a job interview. You go down to Quantico, Virginia. It's all about weeding out those and selecting those that want to be Marine Corps leaders. I, I made it through OCS. The minute I went back to college, all I could think about was completing my degree, getting commissioned as second lieutenant in the Marine Corps, and going off to hopefully fly helicopters or, or jets someday in the Marine Corps back in 1987 when I, when I graduated and got commissioned. Bob's story is compelling, and he's a master storyteller. His presentation rivets everyone who listens. You really don't want it to end. He's built a reputation for delivering a valuable perspective on 9-11 from an insider's point of view. Since his book was published, he finds himself traveling around the country more and more, spending a great deal of time on the road, away from his family and the life of a typical retired armed services professional. I wanted to know why Bob is committed to telling old and new generations about his experiences and what he learned. That day in our history, truly not just changed America, but being right there in the bunker complex, seeing the events transpire the way they did, it, it not only changed me, it changed my wife, Angela, at the time. We had two young boys, but when I got out of the bunker and went back home, my wife and I, both from New York, knew that our life would never be the same. It was, it was gonna be our 10th anniversary, and we were gonna go on some trip somewhere. We decided to cancel the trip and go down to Ground Zero together because our college, Iona College, where we had met, lost 15 of their alumni, 15 former friends of ours, colleagues of ours, were, were killed in those two towers. So being down there at ground zero, we just saw the overwhelming outpouring of support, and we knew that our enemies around the world are now capable of doing unbelievable damage to our country. 
this was not some faraway island or, or some ship that was inadvertently bombed. This was a major city that we both knew so well that was transformed forever. So with that in mind, we decided that we need to go and formulate, formulate our plan to make sure it never happens again. And being inside that bunker that day afforded me the ability to tell my story of those events and help people never forget. And by never forgetting, to, let, to remind people of what we went through that day from that perspective, and to keep them vigilant, to keep them moving forward, to keep them from getting complacent again, to assuming it's over and it's never gonna happen again, to remind them that just because we went off to Afghanistan and we ultimately tracked down and, and got bin Laden, it doesn't mean that those same enemies aren't still trying to hurt this great country. And if we don't stand up and make a difference, it's gonna happen again. And the keynote, the speech that you heard, you know, it's, it's well received. And I feed off the people and I realize there's a real need out there to remind people of those events and to share my story. And my wife supports that. So as a family, this is something that's just been getting more and more traction over, over the years. I got permission from the National Security Council in 2010, I retired in 2007, I got permission in 2010 to put out a manuscript and to go around and do keynote speeches. It started off with just my military colleagues I was giving it to and then it soon grew to local businesses and then before, you long, before long I'm attending conferences and, and now you know we're out there doing it over 50 times a year at, at many different venues and I, I think it's making a difference. I believe in it. It's it's my way outside of uniform to keep giving back. And as, as long as people want to hear it, I'm going to be right there willing to tell it. A chapter that stands out to me is one that's written by Bob's wife, Angela. It's hard to imagine being in her position, especially when he calls her and says he's headed to the bunker under the White House. Oftentimes, we don't get the spouse's perspective written in their own words in a book. It was an interesting editorial decision, but one that works. You know, that's my favorite chapter, in case she's listening. Um, <laughs> it was interesting, I, I came home, and you know, I, I was, was after I came home, we were decided to write the book, and I was having a hard time. First of all, I never wrote a book before, so, you know, do you do, you do a flashback? Do you start from the beginning? Have you, how far do you, you know, it was, it was a lot of challenges in, in getting this book just organized right, and then, the nice part about it was it was all my notes and my experience up to the point where I wanted to tell the world what she was going through when I came home, how we came face to face, what that moment was like that we needed to come together and then not only share what happened to me, but then find a place where we can decompress and think about our two young boys and what this new world order now means to them. And so, like a goofy person that I was, I tried to interview her as if I had a microphone in my hand. I'm going, so honey, so where were you standing? What were you thinking? She goes, you don't know what you're doing. Just let me write my own chapter. And I said, that's probably the best thing for all of us involved. And she soon took out a piece of paper and a pencil and she was telling me, and I remember when you came home and this is what I felt and this is what we did. And, and then she ended up putting her own chapter in and I, I really applaud her for it. She really got me off the hook because that was a tell terrible interview. When you read Bob's book, you'll soon realize it's equal parts a unique retelling of the events of that day, but it's also a lesson in organizational structure and procedure and what happens if that structure breaks down in the midst of a crisis. In this next clip, 
Pay specific attention as Bob conveys that he himself makes a crucial error that could have ended in furthering the disastrous events of 9-11. Well, there was plenty, plenty of mistakes all throughout my military career, for sure. But, you know, when you talk about 9-11, one of the, the terrible mistakes I made that day that I really wanted to learn from myself and, and to share with people to kind of let them know that I'm, I'm not just some guy from Washington, D.C. who's coming to tell you a story about how the world was rosy and I played a small part in it. I really wanted them to know that the chaos also permeated all the way down to my actions as well, my life as well. And it was when we found out that the on 9-11, when the president found out that our FBI counterterrorism team, the elite hostage rescue team, it turns out that all 75 members were in San Francisco doing a major exercise uh, for themselves. And they were trying to get home but all airline traffic was grounded. So immediately through the Pentagon and other channels through the Justice Department, they decided that they had a presidential mission, priority mission to go to San Francisco to get them. When United Airlines, who just suffered the loss of not just United Flight 175, but United 93, um, that airplane that took off out of Newark was supposed to arrive in San Francisco. So San Francisco was just um, tons of grief counselors and family members and air crew and pilots and executives. And when they found out that the hostage rescue team was about ready to be airlifted by the US military to go back to Washington, DC, they decided to get involved in the day and they wanted to make a difference and, and be a part of the, the response. They went through their chain of command over to the Justice Department into the White House to say they would be honored if somehow they would be given permission to fly the hostage rescue team from San Francisco to Washington. Great. Um, the Deputy White House Chief of Staff, Joe Hagan, came over to me. We were talking about all the other missions that had to take place. And by doing this, we freed up a, a major asset that we needed, a C-17 that needed to go somewhere else to do another important mission. So he said, you know, Major, does that help you out? And I said, yes, sir, it does. He goes, and it's approved. It was just as simple as that. And we found out that Special Air Mission 8811 was now formed. United Airlines became a government-sanctioned special air mission carrying HRT from San Francisco back to Washington, D.C. The mistake I made was I was not only responsible for having the airplanes, the, the Air Force or Department of Defense heavy lift airplanes, get to where the White House wanted them to be, but I was responsible for the entire mission from the moment they were picked up to tracking them in flight, to notifying the White House when they arrived. Well, because that was pushed off to that special air mission, I decided I didn't need to keep track of it anymore. And that was a huge mistake because ultimately what ended up happening, the skies were clear, it was almost midnight, special air mission was arriving back at Ronald Reagan Airport in Washington, DC. NORAD had put two fighter jets on either side of it to escort it safely. And I never cleared that mission or notified the Secret Service that mission was in progress. So all they saw was three unidentified aircraft were now approaching near the White House and they hit the alarm. And the alarm was to get into the White House residence and literally scoop the president and first lady out of bed in a moment's notice. The president had barely enough time to grab the two dogs, you know, uh, spot and whatever his name was, but they ended up coming down to the White House bunker complex in a hurry in, you know, when the president was sleeping, I immediately sensed at that moment that this was a major mistake. 
on an airlift operation type level. And it could be a career ending mistake. We'll see how it all works out. But the Secret Service came barreling through the doors, the guns were out. The President, First Lady, he put Barney and Spot down on the rug, and they were quick to tell him that that was a lack of coordination between the White House Airlift Operations Office and the U.S. Secret Service. But that is the hostage rescue team that just landed over at Ronald Reagan Airport. Being the gracious president that he was, President Bush said, So you're telling me that those are friendlies? And he's, yes, sir, those are friendlies. There was a lack of coordination. He picked up the two dogs. He starts walking out and he just turned and looked at me like you don't want to be the guy who gets me pulled out of bed by the Secret Service again tonight. And I, I <laughs> took it to heart. He didn't have to say a word. The look on his face said everything loud and clear. And I realized, wow, that was close. Almost, uh, almost a career ending type mistake, but, but we survived it nonetheless. Bob Darling served in the administrations of both President George W. Bush and President Bill Clinton, notably two very different men. Bob gives a bit of commentary on how those two leaders compare and contrast and what it takes to make it to the White House. Yes, I had the privilege of flying President Clinton around as a, usually I was a co-pilot for President Clinton and I, and I flew uh, the Vice President around as well, but uh, talking about President Clinton is incredibly smart individual. Presidents in general are incredibly smart. I think you have to realize that to become president yeah. of the United States, you have to be a pretty gifted yeah. individual. Even if you know you and I don't think so, yeah, I, I think that the truth is that they are. And uh, he was not only that, he was very gracious. He would come up to the cockpit, say hello, shake your hand, look right at you. You really felt a connection between yourself and, and President Clinton. He was very grateful for the military service. Um, president Bush was the same way. He was not as academic. He was not as uh, quick-witted. I, I should say he was probably more quick-witted than, than President Clinton, his, his personality. Another one who truly, really uh, appreciated the military service that he received on any given day. I've never met President Obama. I know you didn't ask me about him, I never met him. I'm sure he was just as appreciative of the military service that he got from, from uh, the military members. What people have to realize is that we're apolitical being in uniform. We will hand brush the carpet and serve any president regardless of anyone's uh, political affiliation. We don't even want to know. We don't care. All we know is that's the Commander-in-Chief, that's the President of the United States, and we are honored to do that service. So those are different. They're in many ways, they're the same. And uh, meeting both presidents and serving both presidents is probably the the greatest four years of my Marine Corps career. In every cheesy movie about the armed services, you're bound to hear characters addressing each other by their call signs. The most memorable example, of course, is Maverick, Tom Cruise's character in Top Gun. In this next clip, Bob shares the meaning of military call signs and the humorous origin of his own call sign. I'm sorry that's all the time we have today. <laughs> I have a very unique call sign. And call signs, the myth about call signs, we were talking about myths before. First of all, there's a myth that you don't pick your own call sign. A call sign is generated as a result of a weakness in character, a major mistake, a, a deformity in your mind or on your body or something where you did to humiliate yourself it usually generated a call sign. My call sign in the Marine Corps 
uh, inadvertently ended up being the call sign was shyster. Shyster. Now, that's obviously not a term of endearment that anyone wants to be called, especially someone who was hoping to be a stockbroker someday and you know, studied economics. You never want to be the, the, uh, be the shyster. But how it came about is I was a young junior officer. I was a first lieutenant, and I was assigned as the aide, if you will, to the squadron commanding officer. He was a lieutenant colonel at the time. And where he went, I went. If he needed a car, I was responsible for making sure that car was gassed up, clean, ready to go. If he had to wear his uniform, I made sure that uniform was clean. And I took my job pretty seriously. And I think he was appreciative of my service to him. Well, so much so that the other junior officers in the squadron felt like I was a favorite. I became his pet. Totally not true. But that was a perception. So we ended up going to every once in a while, we have this thing called a kangaroo court or a cobra court where you go up and you have to face your peers and they will write charges uh, you know, against you for actions that you have taken to humiliate yourself or not live up to the code. In this case, they felt I was living up to a code. I was a, I was a, a brown noser, if you will, to the squadron command officer. I was a teacher's pet. So they were looking for the appropriate call sign for me and they were trying to come up with politician, uh, let's not get them involved. And other, you know, sundry type terms. Well, someone yelled out, well, we can't say politician, but all politicians are shysters. And someone said, that's perfect. And, I, and they gave me shyster. And I was like, you know what, fine. It's gonna wear off. You guys are gonna see that I'm the complete opposite of the shyster. I, I guarantee that in six months, people never even mention it again. And I can't seem to shake it here now, 27 years later, people still walk up to me and go, hey, it's good to see you, Shyster. So I wear it as a badge of endearment, the term of endearment, but I, I know the, the history behind it and it's, it's opposite day at, in, in, in Bob's camp. Um, couldn't be more from the truth. At one point earlier in our conversation, Bob said he thought about being a stockbroker. It led me to ask if he had any regrets at instead becoming a very successful Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel. You know, it's interesting because I, I was growing up and I was the third of four boys and my parents kept saying to me, you have no aspirations, what do you want to do? And I kept saying, oh, I don't know, I'll figure it out. Well, it's okay to say that when you're eight, 12, 16, now you're 18 years old, you're going to college, hey, what do you want to major in? What do you want to do? I, I still really wasn't sure. But I did know that I used to watch all those TV shows of those stockbrokers and you know who would make millions of dollars and they lived in the big houses and had Ferraris and Lamborghinis. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go and be a stockbroker. I'm going to go and figure out how to do that thing that they do on the on the Nasdaq floor, the stock exchange floor. How do they buy and sell with their hands waving all over the place? And I'm going to make millions. Really, it's going to be great. And then you know it. it no, it never came to pass, but it wasn't a something that was a fleeting moment. Even throughout my Marine Corps career, I always said, you know, if my career ends today at the six-year mark or the eight-year mark or the 10-year mark, I'm going to go back and I'm going to pursue that stockbroker dream that I originally had. But I ended up staying 21 years or just shy of 20, you know, just a little bit over 20 and a half years. And I, uh, I don't think the stockbroker is in my future anymore. I think what we're doing today to share this, this message and to support the Navy with, with financial analytics is, is right where I need to be. Okay. Bob Darling has spent a great deal of time with our marketing team here at Bank of Tennessee. 
during the course of hosting three events where he was featured as our keynote speaker. We've had a lot of fun conversations offline about a variety of topics. Here's a bit of an outtake where we discuss how our professions have so many acronyms. Yeah, easy question, banking. <laughs> Every time I turn around, you guys got some APR or something going on or adjusted ROI on assets or some type of acronym that no one knows what it means. And uh, the bottom line is it's all about, are you making me money or are you not making me money? Are you measuring that? Now, don't get me wrong, the Department of Defense is in a close second. You know, we have acronyms for just about everything. We don't do anything without an ABC attached to it. But I want to, I want to tell you that you guys, you guys take the cake. You guys really are. Bob, here's a simple question. What's your favorite word? I learned this word early on. Uh, I was at the basic school. I was a young junior officer. And somebody yelled out tenacity. And I, tenacity? And I was what the heck does that mean? And it was never given up. No matter what you're faced with in life, get through it. No matter how many bad days you're having in the basic school or how many bad flights you had in flight school or everything that's going wrong on the battlefield, be tenacious. Find a way to overcome. Buckle down. Keep your nose to the grindstone. Plow your way through it because tomorrow's a better day. And next thing you know, you're going to make it to the other side. But one thing we never want to do is we never want to quit. We don't want to be around quitters. We don't want to support quitters. We don't want people who are just flimsy and change their mind. We want people who are goal-driven and who, who never who never give up. And I learned that early in the Marine Corps that, that you know what, that's a great word, tenacity. And I'm going to use that with my boys when uh, they're growing up. A very popular and in-demand speaker, Bob presents at over 50 events a year interacting with a myriad of industries and groups. I asked him what engagement was the most memorable experience for him. I was in New York City and I spoke to the scientist from Sandia Labs. And I, first of all, I couldn't believe they came out even long enough in the daylight to find out you know, that I exist. And I got invited to come to, Sim, to uh, this conference that they were having, the Sandia Lab, all these scientists, and meet them at ground zero to talk about the events of 9-11 and what that means for their profession. A bunch of nuclear scientists. First of all, I know very little about their profession other than they have thousand pound heads and they're doing unbelievable things in defense of our country, uh, creating all these weapons that you know nobody hopes ever get used in the world. And they're sitting around fascinated by what I have to tell them. I just couldn't believe it. I was speaking to 50 PhDs, if that's even, they would go higher if there was another level of academic you know success and i found them to be a fascinating group a they love america they love their jobs they think they're playing an integral role in the overall defense of this great nation they don't make weapons to be used they make weapons to make sure that they never have to be used they make them so they work the first time they were telling me that it's important to them to make sure that these weapons work if we ever need them and god forbid we ever need them but they're there for the commander-in-chief to defend our way of life. And I was getting a whole new perspective on the passion behind scientists. And I never saw that before. But every one of them was wrapped in the American flag and proud of the service and the contributions they were making to the defense of our nation, despite the fact that they're creating weapons that have never been used or haven't been used since August 6th and August 9th, back in 1945. Bob makes an interesting statement in his keynote address. This is paraphrased. 
You can be forgiven for making a decision with the information you have, but it's hard to forgive when you don't make a decision at all. To be a leader in the event of a crisis, you have to assess the situation and make the best decision possible. Bob puts this in perspective. I, I always take it from the perspective that when you have a crisis, something is beginning to go wrong. If, if it does go wrong, it, it goes well beyond crisis, it becomes an emergency. At that point, the first responders will take over, cordon off the area, you take a step back. There's professionals now taking care of that event where it no longer is a crisis. But while it's in your purview, while it's in your court, and things start to go wrong, if you're able to ascertain what it is, develop courses of action to prevent it from getting worse, and have the courage to make a decision, right, wrong, or indifferent, if you believe that's what was required to save people, and then property, and then profits, always putting people first, you'll always be a great leader in someone's eyes. However, on the other side of that coin, you could be the best CEO in peacetime that there is. You can have all the right numbers to make sure that your corporations are growing at the standard rate that your stockholders or stakeholders want you to grow. But if you put people's lives at stake because you're not willing to make that call that could jeopardize that bottom line and it actually escalates to the point where you lose somebody, I think it's a complete failure of your leadership. I don't think you can have one without the other today. I think if you're gonna be in a, in a major corporation or even a minor corporation, and you're not prepared to make the hard call, even to lose a dollar here and there, at the sake of potentially saving a life, then you're not the right guy for the job, and I really do stress that. I get it, I get that bottom lines are important, but they're never more important than the people that you serve. And the people that you serve will help you be the best that you can be if you're willing to make the tough call on their behalf. They'll, they'll, you'll give it back, you'll get it back in tenfold, that type of loyalty and trust. And I try to, I try to stress that you know, in, my, in my teachings on Christ's leadership. A whole generation of Americans was born around 9-11. And believe it or not, most are now 18 years old, technically adults. They've had to live under restrictions their whole lives that we never had to growing up. This new generation will be instrumental in maintaining a balance between defending our safety and our civil liberties. I asked Bob for his thoughts. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, we really need the next generation. Okay, first of all, they may not remember it, feel it, smell it the way you and I do. Okay, it, it happened before they were born, but now they're being raised in a post 9-11 world. And they're being told that our enemies are out there, they're ruthless, they're trying to hurt us, they destroyed two buildings, and all they know is they have to live under the Patriot Act, which is saying that the, you know, the government was going to do some data mining and try to figure out who was the next threat to America. They're now going to live with other, other laws that have red flag laws, that if you're deemed on social media to be a threat, now we can go and invade and change and, and come into your house to arrest you preemptively if we need to be. Those type of things are important, but civil rights and civil liberties are important as well. And we need a balance between the two of them. So we're turning to this new generation of super smart Game Boy type kids who are now all techies since the time they could hold a rattle, they had an iPad in their hand, to say, can you help us out? Can you help protect our civil liberties by coming up with the laws and policies that enable national security to continue 
having these laws that we need to keep everybody safe, but yet not at the expense of civil liberties. Where is the magic balance point? Where is that fulcrum? And we're going to turn to them and say, instead of getting a policy written that takes months, we can do it now in hours. We can turn to them and say, generate something rapidly. Let's get it staffed rapidly. Let's support the defense of our great nation without giving away everything our forefathers fought to give us. There is always that balance in life, and I'm, I'm really counting on them. I call them the I generation. They may not understand what 9-11 meant to us, but they understand that 9-11 needs to be important to them, or they're going to give away way more rights than they ever imagined as a result of 9-11. So it does connect that. We hope you've enjoyed this Be Bold podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Bob Darling. To learn more about him, visit his website at robertjdarling.com. You can purchase his book or inquire about speaking engagements for your own group or organization. I promise you won't be disappointed. And be sure to visit botcastnetworks.com for more of our podcasts. The views and opinions expressed during this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policy or views of Bank of Tennessee. The preceding podcast is a production of Bank of Tennessee, member FDIC, and equal housing lender.